0: The Rural Health Voice, episode 70, Barrier Crimes. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. How are barrier crimes an obstacle to health care access? Dr. Kevin Doyle of the Hazelden Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies joined me to discuss how barrier crimes are a good idea with poor implementation. Well, welcome, Kevin. Glad to have you here today.
1: Happy to be with you, and thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Absolutely. So I see you are the dean and interim provost at the Hazen Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies. How did you first become interested in addiction studies?
1: Gosh, my career as a counselor, all in Virginia, by the way, goes back to the mid 1980s, and I think I got sucked into the stories of recovery. They're just so powerful, and as a counselor, hearing people and being maybe helpful to turn their lives around from such um, such tremendous barriers that occur during addiction is really what it's all about. So, uh, you know, I got pulled into that and have never left.
0: And the graduate school is physically located in Minnesota, but you spend most of your time in Virginia. What do you do here in Virginia?
1: Well, I wouldn't say most of my time. Um, I spend probably most of my time these days in Minnesota. Um, Family's still in Virginia. I had a long career as a counselor and a counselor educator in Virginia, and so we still own a home there. And um, most of my family is uh, not interested in the Minnesota winters, so I'm up here um, myself uh, for, for some of the year in my role as dean and and interim provost. But while in Virginia, um, I worked for a number of different um, substance use treatment agencies, residential treatment, outpatient treatment. And then toward the latter part of my career, I moved into the higher education side of things and was an adjunct professor at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and then full-time counselor educator at Longwood University in Farmville.
0: And I saw that for the graduate school, there's an online option for that program. Is addiction counseling really something that can be effectively learned virtually?
1: I think we're all reassessing that exact question as it relates to almost everything now because of the pandemic. So many things have moved to online, and in many ways, we haven't missed a beat. Um, We have had an online program since 2016, so we've been perfecting that over the last five or six years. And we've found that, yes, a lot of the skills can be taught online. However, there's something about being a counselor that um, really does does help to be in the same room with people during the educational process. So we have what we call a residency period. So at a couple of points during the uh, degree program, the online degree program, students do physically come to Minnesota and spend most of the week with us doing some of those things in person. And we can help assess some of their skills, um, you know, in the in-person environment. So it's a great question. And I think I I think that we assumed that this couldn't be done in the virtual space, you know, over the past few decades, as we started getting more and more comfortable with um, online delivery. And now we're finding that in reality, so much of it can be done that way. And not only that, clients or patients, depending upon the word that we use, sometimes prefer receiving services that way. So if we train people that way, they'll probably be better at actually providing services in the online uh, environment. So, um, I mean, if you think about what we ask of clients and patients, you know, drive however long to, think about your doctor's office, you know, Drive however long to the office. Find a place to park. Pay for parking, um, depending upon you know where the person is located. Sit in a waiting room with other sick people, you know, um, physically sick, and then and then wait for your appointment. And then and then have your appointment and drive home and repeat the process if you have childcare or you know, scheduling issues. Um, There's a lot that was built into the old way of delivering services that may not have been necessary. And so I think what we're trying to do is to um, acknowledge that there may be other ways of doing this.
0: Well, and one of the things that we've noticed, you know, as we've adjusted to the pandemic is being able to provide services virtually has erased a lot of transportation barriers. You know, you can do a 12-step program anytime, anywhere.
1: Exactly. With people from around the world. And, um, you know, I know a lot of folks in recovery who will say something like, uh, yeah, I go to my home group, um, you know, on Thursday nights at, at 8 PM and most of the members are in New Zealand, you know, or whatever. Um, and, uh, It's opened up access in ways that I don't think we quite understood. It was very slowly moving in that direction pre-pandemic, but because of the pandemic, so many opportunities are being opened up to folks, and it's really causing us to look at how we do things in so many areas.
0: If someone is considering addiction counseling as a career, what advice would you give that person?
1: Well, I, I would encourage them to go for it. And uh, on the day we're recording this, we saw the news that um, this past year there have been over 100,000 overdose deaths in this country. Um, and it's just staggering to think about the the pain and suffering and um you know, tragedies that are happening now, and they've kind of been overlooked a little bit during COVID, and I I understand why. Um, But let's just say optimistically that the pandemic, you know, begins to abate here in the coming months. We're still left with a really tremendous public health challenge. And so the first thing that I would say is you can make a great difference in the world by considering a career as a counselor, specifically an addictions counselor. Um, It's not for everyone. Um, you know, certainly not everyone who seeks treatment or counseling is going to do well. It's a chronic condition that is difficult to overcome and yet people do recover and it's really dramatic when they do. Um, you know, going back to what I said about what what drew me in. Um, I think it is a, a skill that can be learned and can be taught, um, but it also helps to have some sort of passion for the work. And um, whether that's because you identify as a person in recovery yourself, or this is a disease that's affected your family, many folks in the workforce have something that, that makes this personal. But it doesn't have to be that. Uh, But That draws a lot of people into being interested in perhaps um, passing on the kind of services that they were fortunate to receive in the early stages of their recovery, for example. Um, But what I would say, though, is that it takes more than just personal experience. You do have to learn these skills. And so, yes, we have an online program at Hazel and the Betty Ford Graduate School. There are other programs, uh, of course, in, in many areas in Virginia and other places, um, whether they in, be in person or online. But to take this seriously and learn the skills, you need to be effective um, and uh, you can make a tremendous difference in the world.
0: And you referred to addiction as a chronic disease, but that's a relatively new way of thinking of addiction as being a disease. What, what changes have you seen in how we view and treat addiction over the years?
1: I think we're making slow but steady progress. Um, we used to really shame the, the the individual with a substance use disorder. So even in the terminology that we use, there's progress being made. Um, terms like addict and alcoholic and um you know and 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 much worse but those aren't really used anymore i think that in lots of areas of mental health and physical health we we try to use person first language so uh, so as not to be blaming the individual or further stigmatizing someone so so a term that you hear much more frequently now is person with a substance use disorder, um, and and the same would be true for things like you know epileptic or schizophrenic or ways that we would label people um, as if that's the only part of their humanity is that 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 disease or condition that they might have. So that has helped. Access to care has helped. Um, we are nowhere near where we need to be, but coverage by third parties, whether it be Medicaid or private insurance, is better than it was. Um, so I think we're getting there. Um, um, support mechanisms that are in place for people, as you alluded to, you know online support mechanisms like 12-step recovery groups being much more available. Um, advocacy um, is being done um, uh, better than it has been before. Lawmakers understand that we can invest in someone uh, someone's treatment and recovery or, pay the costs in the in the legal system in the criminal justice system you know which one has a better outcome and i would argue that the public health or medical um you know um investment is much more um much more beneficial to society so uh, so so i think there's slow but steady improvement um there's been a lot of talk among uh people in the recovery community about how to be respectful of people's privacy and confidentiality of course which are really important but also encourage people who are in recovery, who did benefit from receiving good treatment to be a little more open, a little more public about that. I, I, I still hear people say, well, I don't, i don't know anybody in recovery and my response to that is yes you do you just don't realize that you do um, and so there's a some tension in um, the recovery community i think around uh, anonymity and and how open to be and there seems to be a move in the direction of if you if you can feel comfortable in getting to a place where you've, you you're able to disclose that you're a person in recovery even that term right um, you know not so much a recovering addict or a recovering alcoholic or or heaven forbid the term reformed which which makes it sound like a moral issue. Um, but if you can be open about being a person in recovery, those folks who do have uh, active substance use disorders can see this is something from which you can recover. If you get the help that you need and engage with other people in recovery, um, there's a way out, um, so so there's a lot to be encouraged about, um, but there's still you know so many things that are challenging, and, and even that statistic from what we learned earlier today is just really daunting. So there's a great need, but I think we're we're slowly making progress.
0: And your work first came to my attention when an editorial you wrote was published in the Richmond Times Dispatch about barrier crime laws. What are barrier crimes? well
1: I'm going to try to be charitable and 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 uh, assume that they came from a good place so um, so we can we can try to at least acknowledge that it was well-meaning in its intent um, the idea here was that there are people who have committed certain crimes who should not be uh, allowed to work in certain settings where they might potentially be uh, a danger to a consumer uh, to an individual and so most of the Uh, The laws in Virginia uh, applied to human services types of jobs. So in Virginia, the public mental health system is referred to as the community services boards, the CSBs. Every community has a community services board. Sometimes it's an individual county or city. Sometimes it's multi-county. I think there's something like 45 community services boards, for example. Um, Schools, mental health agencies were prohibited from hiring an individual who had any one of about 160 barrier crimes in their background, um, and that ban, that prohibition was a permanent, a lifetime ban. So, an individual who had let's let's call it uh, let's use an assault conviction, right? And I don't mean to minimize that; that's a serious crime. Um, first of all, who who gets convicted of crimes like that, um, as opposed to a lower level crime? you would say that it's of great advantage to have uh, an excellent attorney as opposed to, um, you know, court appointed for you. So if it, so it's people of lower socioeconomic status might have less, ability to um, kind of negotiate a less serious conviction. Um, And then secondly, people with substance use disorders during the active phase of addiction often find that they have criminal convictions for one of these many barrier crimes. And again, I don't mean to minimize the seriousness of any of them. There are probably some individuals who shouldn't be working with other people. But the vast majority of people that I've worked with and literally thousands over my 30, 35 years doing this work. Um, If they get into recovery, you see this really strong uh, correlation with the criminal activity happened when they were actively using substances and stops when they get into recovery. So why should that person have a lifetime ban because of something that happened as a direct consequence of their substance use? Again, this is not to, um, you know, minimize anyone's culpability or absolve anyone from responsibility, but having a lifetime ban seems like um, well beyond what's necessary when someone has satisfied all uh requirements of the criminal justice system you know, you know they serve their time or done their probation paid fines whatever it is community service all those things and you know there's a little bit of a uh you know a, a misconception out there that you know who's best to treat someone with a substance use disorder a person in recovery it's not quite that simple but the workforce is hugely composed of people with Uh, With um, recovery stories. And so to rule folks like that out, and that was the focus of that particular uh, op-ed in the Richmond paper, that um, there are some legislators and individuals now, uh, there's some active lawsuits, for example, about folks who have done everything required of them in the criminal justice system, have even received credentials as addiction counselors who cannot be hired because of these, let's call them well-meaning barrier crimes laws. And, um, I heard from some folks after that piece uh, across the political spectrum. Um, it was really, really striking. Um, so from the traditional conservative or Republican, um, position, generally they want people back to work, right? They don't want people on public assistance. And this is a barrier to people working people who want to work and be productive, Taxpayers, you know, um, doing the things that, that show that they've successfully overcome this problem, I think is consistent with what might be termed traditional uh, conservative values. And then from people on the the other side of the political spectrum um, you know who would generally be seen as um, sort of supportive of, of individuals um, uh, regardless of the, type, the types of challenges they faced in their lives which might be more of a you know a liberal or democratic position would be supportive of individuals having those kinds of opportunities too and it was really interesting to me that this is one area that I think both sides of the political spectrum can come together on um, the one letter I got From an individual who who identifies from the Republican side of things, said, You know, um, why would we not let employers make these decisions? You know, um, government shouldn't be making these decisions. Employers can decide who they want to take a risk on and who they don't. I, I hadn't thought of it quite that way before, but that makes complete sense to me that, you know, if an employer says, Gosh, you know, it's been 15 years since this conviction and you've been living a really productive life, um, why shouldn't I have the right to decide whether I want to, um, assume that risk and hire you? Um, and so, um, we've had conversations and by, by we, I mean, addiction counselors, um, from around Virginia with legislators over the years. And, um, it's been slow going because they don't, I think feel that there's a an advocacy constituency for people like this, and and um, I'm encouraged that there does seem to be right now some some discussion of maybe this was really not necessary. Is there a better way to do this? So I think there's some hope, and from what I understand, some legislatures legislators are considering introducing legislation in the coming session that might uh, might reform the barrier crimes laws. Mm-hmm.
0: And in your editorial, you reference a situation in which someone who had worked his way through recovery and had been employed as a substance abuse counselor for eight years was fired for something that happened while he was still in active addiction 17 years ago. Don't the barrier crimes account for how long the individual has been drug free? They
1: do not. Um, so you can see the flaw in that. Right. So lifetime ban. Now, what, as I understand it, what happened in that case, and it was reported in the Virginia Mercury to give credit to where to where I read about it first, was that this individual was employed in a setting that didn't have a contract with um, with a state agency to whom the law would apply. So in a, the, 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 the really strange irony here is you could be licensed as an addictions counselor and be doing private practice work. And the law wouldn't apply because it was applicable to entities like community services boards, um, mental health agencies, things like that. So you could hang out a shingle and do the work, and the law wouldn't have applied. But if, but his employer in that case entered into a contract with a public agency that then made them subject to this provision. So even though he'd been doing this work successfully for whatever it was, eight years, um, then the law came into effect because of that contract. There's, there's something not right about that. Um, and it takes advocates to stand up and say, we need to do better. And, uh, As I said, I've been, I I received a letter yesterday and I don't feel comfortable saying the name, but it was from a a state senator uh, who said, I I really want to do something about this. And uh, so, um, really pleased that the Richmond paper ran that. And there does seem to be some discussion uh, around how can we, um, you know, maybe preserve some of the intent of this around, you know, safety. You know, and th- there are some incredibly serious crimes, obviously, on that list of 160 murder and rape and arson and things like that. You know, those may or may not be crimes uh, that would be someone would be eligible to be hired. But I can tell you, there are 160 plus of them. Uh, possession of burglary as tools, for example. Possession of burglarious tools, that that deserves so, a lifetime like ban. A lock
0: pick, I <laughs> guess. Yeah, I, I don't. If I, don't I have know a lock th- pick, I wow. don't even know
1: what that means. But you know, that's that's on the list. Hazing is on the list. Now, you know, hazing is a serious crime, and I don't mean to say that it's not. Um, but if you think of uh, and some of these are d- the different levels, too. There are misdemeanor and felony levels and things like that. And I'm not a lawyer, so the differentiation is, is you know, sometimes the devil's in the details. But, you know, if somebody um, was in a in a uh, fraternity or sorority and was convicted of a hazing crime at the age of 19, should they never, in, you know, for the next 30 or 40 years of their active work life, be permitted to work with other individuals? Or should an employer have the ability to make that decision? Saying, you know, I noticed that that happened when you were in college, you've since gone through treatment, you now have 20 years in your personal recovery, you've earned a master's degree or a doctorate, and, and I still can't hire you, um, there's something wrong there. Um, when we don't have the ability to look a little bit more uh, at a situation in a case-by-case manner to see if it makes sense for this person to uh, to take on additional work responsibilities.
0: Well, and when we think about jobs like substance abuse counselor or peer recovery specialist, doesn't it make sense to hire people who have dealt with addiction themselves?
1: Yeah, it does make sense. And I'm glad you mentioned the peer recovery specialist because that's a growing movement, not just in Virginia, but around the country is finding ways to um, utilize those those unique skills and passion that folks who have been through this um, you know, do bring to it. That is that. so much of the workforce historically over decades now is people who have that, that passion from, from their own experience. Now, again, I will say, and this is not to, you know, toot our own horn from, from our particular graduate school, but, um, Solely being in recovery is not sufficient. There does need, and for peer recovery specialists, they have to go through a training program too. So, um, so adding the the passion that one's own recovery brings with the education or training that someone can get. Through workshops, institutes, conferences, online learning, traditional undergraduate or graduate education is a powerful, powerful combination. And just ruling all of those folks out, out of hand, and and not every single person in recovery has, you know, one of these barrier crimes. But um, I worked for many years at a nonprofit in Northern Virginia, and, you know, there were so many folks we wanted to hire and went through the screening process and learned that we could not. And they had everything we were looking for for these positions, but something had happened you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, one colleague that I had um, who um, had been in the field for a long time had a bank robbery charge. He had been hired before their barrier crimes laws went into effect. So there was a grandfathering period that if they were already working, they didn't lose their jobs um, because it was prior to when the law went into effect in the first place. And he was outstanding, uh, and retired from his career very successfully. Um, had the law been in effect when he applied though, we wouldn't have been able to hire him. Um, and there are numerous people like that. So I don't want to equate every person in recovery with someone with a, with a criminal background, but if we've criminalized substance use um, in and of itself, which we have, um, and logically, when somebody is addicted to substances, often that leads to to criminal activity almost by definition. and so um so you're ruling out um, so many folks who could be potentially um, outstanding additions to the workforce. And that's what the issue was. It is.
0: When I was reading about this issue, a statistic that stuck out to me is that over the last three years, approximately 1,100 people have been deemed ineligible to work for facilities licensed by the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health due to past barrier crimes convictions. We have a shortage of healthcare providers, especially in jobs related substance use disorder, and yet, we're turning people away. How, how how does that work?
1: I I hadn't seen that statistic. That is just staggering. Um, gosh, yeah, I, I, exactly. I couldn't couldn't say it any, any better myself. Um, you know, and again, I'm not I'm not um, you know proposing that. Every single one of those 1,100 people um, should be employed. Perhaps some shouldn't. Maybe their criminal activity was just too extensive and too long-standing, or it's been inconsistent since their entry into recovery. But my my instincts from decades of being around this tell me that hundreds of those folks could have been ideal employees. And you're right, workforce shortages are very real. That's not the reason for doing this. The reason for for changing this is because it's the right thing to do, and. You know, the, the utilitarian part of the argument is we have a workforce shortage in addition to this. We should be doing this even if we didn't have a workforce shortage, but it's even more pressing when we do. Uh, there are people out there who want to work, you know, who have the passion and the skill for this and are being punished for something that they've already been punished for. The criminal justice system has done what it's done. You know, if they had to serve time in jail or prison, they did that. If they had to be on probation, they did that. Um... And, you know, I I have issues when, and I mentioned this in the op-ed, when, you know, we take action that's outside of the criminal justice system. There have been lawsuits around um, removal of people's driver's licenses, you know why is that a punishment that we give to someone because they, they had a, um, you know, committed a crime? It just, it just is a further barrier to people getting back to to productivity, which is what we all want. We want people working. I mean, who doesn't want that? And most individuals want that for themselves too. Um, they want a good job, you know, so you, but you say you can't drive or you're ineligible because of a barrier crimes law. Um, I've done a lot of work in my career with healthcare professionals and, um, most states, and Virginia does too, have a really good and supportive program for licensed healthcare professionals returning to practice. In Virginia, it's called the Health Practitioners Monitoring Program. So you're in an intensive monitoring program for five years with random drug testing, but you can re- return to practice as a nurse or doctor or dentist, um, which which I applaud. Um, there There are checks and balances in place to make sure that someone is safely in practice. And yet, Sometimes there are additional penalties that come out of the blue on things like this from the criminal justice system or from federal agencies that don't allow people to be credentialed, again, through the DEA uh, for prescribing when, again, they're doing all they've been asked to do to recover from... Uh, the issues with with substance use and return to to full health and functioning. So we sometimes throw these additional curveballs at people that uh, make, that make no sense. Um, and uh, so it's not just the barrier crimes law, but that that's the one that's sort of in the you know in the uh, in the target right now about maybe reevaluating that.
0: Mm-hmm. I know that several of the community service boards we work with are frustrated when they have an otherwise wonderful candidate be turned down for a position because of barrier crime. Additionally, I know that training programs for peer recovery specialists in southwest Virginia has increased the number of peers available in eastern Tennessee because the barriers to being hired in Virginia. They get their certification in Virginia. That border is really narrow when when a job's in your way.
1: Yeah, isn't that a shame, you know, that we have Virginians who are willing to work, who are being forced to uh, cross the state line to find a, a more supportive uh, work environment? I, I think we can do better in Virginia. I'd still identify as a Virginian, even though I'm physically in Minnesota a lot these days, but, um, you know, really proud to be in Virginia and, and think that we should be leaders on things like that. And so, um you know, again, let's just maybe be charitable and say it was well intentioned, but um, and I'm not sure I even agree with that. But but you know, rather than getting into why did it, did we do this in the first place a couple decades ago, um, you know, law and order um, kinds of, um, political approaches are attractive to a lot of people. And that's maybe why that was put into place. But I think there may be some consensus now that it, uh, it was an overcorrection unnecessary, um, and should be reassessed. And we don't want people leaving the state who are willing to work and would prefer to work in their home community. So whether it's Tennessee or Kentucky, West Virginia, North Carolina, Maryland, all the bordering states, um, that, that, that's, um, you know, really unnecessary, I think. And let's put Virginians to work helping other Virginians.
0: Absolutely. What do you see as the next steps forward for addressing barrier crimes?
1: Well, I really want to challenge people in recovery um, to consider being more open about that. I was part of a meeting last year, um, and I I will mention this person's name because I think he he would be comfortable with that, Senator Cree Deeds from, um, Bath County. Um, and I was able to facilitate a meeting where he, um, uh, listened to about, I think are 10 or 12 healthcare professionals in recovery and learned about the barriers that they face. He had some real, uh, good words of advice and support for them and they, they felt heard. Um, so I would encourage the, people in the recovery community to make themselves known to their elected officials, whether they be at the state level, this is a state level issue. So particularly your member of the House of Delegates or the Senate of Virginia and go see them in their offices and say, I'm a person in recovery. And for me, this is what that means, you know, Um, because I think legislators need to know that their constituents include people in recovery who have um, successfully accessed treatment, whether it be through the public system, the community services boards, the licensed programs from um, the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services that you referenced, private programs, wherever it might be, and are working programs of recovery now and want to give back and get back to work. Um, I think legislators are um, um, sometimes... Uh, unfamiliar with that, and so for folks in recovery, go go meet your. You know they're individual people, right? They're part-time legislators in our state and in Virginia. Um, so whether it be during the general assembly session itself, or before and after, when people are in their home district offices, go go see them. Not necessarily with an ask, although you could go and say, you know, I'd like you to consider reforms to barrier crimes laws, that would certainly be appropriate, but just to get to know them and build a relationship so they know that there are constituents that are, are people in recovery who are, are ready, willing, and able to give back to the community. Um, Again, who's against that? So I think that's that's really um, you know a very concrete and easy step. It could and it could even be writing a letter. You don't necessarily have to go meet with them, but I do think there's something that you know is uh, special about the in-person you know interaction. Secondly, go to the general assembly um, sessions, you know, committee meetings. If there is legislation that is proposed. Uh, be part of educating your uh, your senator or a member of the House about that, and make your make your wishes known about how this is uh, something that you, as a constituent, um, support. And as I said, I don't think this has to be a partisan issue. I think there is a lot to be said for uh, the workforce side of this that might might be traditionally identified as uh, more of a Republican. Uh, position, you know, um, working uh, as opposed to people being on on public assistance. Which, if you can't work, you know, there are limited resources. So, those are things that I would suggest as next steps: um, learning about the issue and and uh, you know, rolling up your sleeves and and wading into the the uh, political conversation.
0: And last question: the question I ask all my guests. If you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America?
1: Uh, I think access to high quality mental health care. So my my focus would be on the mental health side. And so making sure that individuals with any kind of a mental health disorder, whether it's a substance use disorder, uh, anxiety, depression, many people say at all time highs right now, um, having access to that. And so, you know, we often say that So when someone's ready, they're ready, and they may not be ready a week from now if there's a long waiting list. So trying to improve access to care, um, whether that be in-person care, such as through the various locations of our community services boards um, in Virginia or virtual options. Um, which many people now are very open to, um, trying to eliminate waiting lists and unnecessary barriers to uh, to receiving the, the health and uh, care and mental health care that individuals need. It's a broad answer, but um, I think it's, uh, it's all about access for me.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Beth. Really great pleasure to be with you and thanks for the great work you're doing.
0: That's Dr. Kevin Doyle promoting better access to mental health services. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, join the BRG leadership at the National Rural Health Association's Policy Institute in February. This is your chance to meet with rural health leaders from across the nation and talk directly with members of Congress and their staff. Event links are in the show notes. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.